The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month on The Compliance Life, my guest is Asha Palmer. Asha has the current position of CECO at Conversant by OneTrust. We talk about what it's like to be a CECO at a compliance tech and product company. We detail her journey from watching Claire Huxtable on the Crosby Show to wanting to become a lawyer to going to a historic Black college and university, law school, moving to Abu Dhabi, becoming passionate about working in compliance, establishing her own compliance consulting firm, which led her to sitting in the CCO chair or CECO chair at Conversant by One Trust. She details for us some of her observations in moving from the legal to compliance profession and what compliance professionals need to be thinking about and more importantly doing in the future. It's a fascinating exploration. I know you will enjoy this month's offering on The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with episode two of this month's The Compliance Life with Asha Palmer. Uh, Asha, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Asha, we ended our last podcast with the question, what do you think about Abu Dhabi? So we're going to start this podcast with that question. Who asked it to you and what did you think? Of course, um, my husband asked it to me. Um, I We ended the last episode talking about my path to the Department of Justice, a path that you know, I was very excited about under administration. I was also very excited to work with. And about nine months into that journey, my husband called me. I was actually at the NAC, which is the training um, facility for AUSAs. And I was at the NAC for two weeks. And my husband called me probably a week and a half into that. I was getting ready for my trial. And he said, what do you think about Abu Dhabi? To which I answered, what are you talking about? I don't think about Abu Dhabi. Actually, Tom, I said after that, I'm not even sure I know where it is, <laughs> which I'm afraid to admit right now. But at that time, I was like, why are you asking me this? What are you, What is your real question, right? You know, that's the litigator in me. It's like, what's your real question? 
um, to which he then explained um, a week later, because I did shut the conversation down right there, um, that there was an opportunity for him in Abu Dhabi to um, work for Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi and establish um, a standard of healthcare in Abu Dhabi that would be uh, groundbreaking and game changing. And he was very excited about that opportunity. Um, I still was not willing to have the conversation at the time, um, really enjoying my job and having just started, um, but I lost that battle. Uh, we went to visit and I had never seen my husband so excited about um, something in his career that I could not say no. So I've had, uh, I don't know if you've come to know Don Cinco, the uh, uh, chief integrity officer at Cleveland Clinic, but I've had Don on several times and he's talked about uh, Abu Dhabi and the Cleveland Clinic and their work there. But what did uh, what did you do after your relocation to Abu Dhabi? Yeah, so what's interesting is the the person who is not the person with the job moving abroad is usually called the trailing spouse. So the original plan was that I was going to be the trailing spouse. But Tom, if you know me, I don't trail far behind much. So um, I actually got on the phone when we made the decision with one of my mentors at the Coca-Cola company, who I had worked very closely with um, during my time at King and Spalding, and said, what am I going to do? I, I can't be a litigator over there. That's all I know what am I going to do and he actually opened a door at Coca-Cola for me um, on an interim basis to work for them in their trademark litigation department um, looking after their Africa portfolio where they had a lot of trademark infringement um, litigation and so actually before I left uh, the U.S. to uh, patriate over to Abu Dhabi. I had offered, I had been offered an, an interim job with the Coca-Cola company, uh, where I worked for two years um, after being over there. What else did you get up to in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, so trademark law was not quite my jam. Um, it was interesting, but um, again, not. Um, not what I wanted to do. And so I really went on a path of discovery, of trying to understand the skills that I had gotten at King and Spalding, the skills I had gotten at the Department of Justice, my passion for really um, change and storytelling to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. So many people have heard this story before, Tom. I started teaching business ethics um, to college business students at the American University Dubai. And I'll tell you, when I was handed the curriculum, I was like, oh my goodness, I don't want to teach this class. It was very theoretical, not as practical as I would have wanted it to be to be able to teach it. And there was a light bulb that went off to me and said, if we are not teaching business ethics in a way that's tangible and real, how can the future business leaders of the world make it tangible and real in the job functions they will perform after graduating? And so I spent countless hours making that theory supported by case studies and 
um, real life situations that were happening in the world. In that class, we talked about Rania Plaza. We talked about um, Mattel toys. We talked about Enron. We talked about all of the business ethical dilemmas, um, Starbucks and their recycling and sustainability. We talked about real life tangible cases um, of responsibility and integrity that the business world was facing. I tried to bring the theory to the practical every day. And so we got, it, it, I almost taught the class like I was in law school, right? It was like Socratic method, read this case study. Now let's talk about it. You take the position of you know, one side and you take the position of the other. And we talked about it. And it was the most fun I had had in my career in a long time, because it taught me that it really came full circle to me, which is the how do we feed back and actually empower employees not to make these ethical or Ill, unethical or illegal choices in a way that's sustainable. And I remember driving home because I lived in Abu Dhabi and I was teaching in Dubai and it's about a 45 minute drive. And I remember driving home talking to my grandmother who is now 92 years old and saying, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. So let me go back to your uh, Coca-Cola experience. As you talked about uh, your early professional career at King and Spalding and how you really were stretched in different ways that helped inform your career going forward. You talked about the work at the um, Northern District of Georgia and how you really focused on the storytelling and then you move to an area that I view as a little bit more technical, which is trademark. Uh, my experience is when I moved to a more technical area when I first went in-house of reviewing contracts and reading and writing contracts was that not only did I have to focus on the words, but it was a negotiation, obviously, but that technical experience really helped inform me in compliance because I understood the need and use of policies and procedures, but only if they're written in a way that the average employee can understand. Did you have any sort of uh, uh, experiences around that part of your career that really you can see help you as a current CECO? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Tom. Um, technical is a good way <laughs> to describe trademark law. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of policies, procedures, guidelines, usage, you know, uh, but we did not see the same understanding of those policies and procedures, right? And I think that is a gap that existed within the company and within a lot of companies, but also um, in how you communicate that to the world, right? Trademark is as much about um, how the company uh, displays their trademark as it is about how the world respects a trademark. And so a lot of my work was really about how the world was respecting or not respecting the trademark. And so we really had to look at, did we have policies and procedures that, that gave guidance outward just as much as inward? And so for me, it was 
the the need or the the dual need of managing your employees and the conduct within the company as much as articulating it out. So I would say that I learned that a little bit more than I had appreciated um, in any other in any of my other roles, and something I still use today, quite frankly. I'd now like to move to sovereign wealth funds. And one of the most, or probably several of the most well-known are Middle Eastern uh, Emirates or other uh, countries, uh, Dubai, the UAE. And what was your experience in that? And how did you, how did that experience really help inform your views about global compliance and ethics? So Tom, after I professed my love for ethics and compliance to my grandmother on that ride home. Um, I was a woman on a mission again, and um, I was determined to articulate why the sum of my experiences before formally entering the ethics and compliance world made me a great ethics and compliance officer or counsel. And I was able to articulate and advocate for, again, the storytelling, teaching, understanding legal consequences, but not necessarily communicating in legal consequences. I had dealt with the carrot and the stick, right? The, the incentive-based, you know, you should want to do the right thing as well as the, if you don't, <laughs> there will be consequences. And so I, the sum of those experiences, as well as understanding, you have to have feedback. You can't just, you know, chase the bad guys without changing some of the laws, the regulations, the procedures, and the processes. And so the sum of my experiences really manifested for me in that aha moment. And then I was so privileged to go work for a sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi that had varying businesses across the world. So not only were they geographically diverse, they were um, um, industry diverse. And so we dealt with aerospace, we dealt with uh, healthcare, we dealt with energy, we dealt with so many different types of companies. And so the benefit for me was not just managing the compliance program at the, the parent company level, but it was also infusing myself into the ethics and compliance programs at each of those subsidiaries, because there were different maturity levels, there were different risk profiles, there was different scalability and resourcing, there were different geographic considerations that we had to take in place. And so there was no one size fits all compliance program. And so we couldn't copy paste <laughs> the compliance program we had at the parent company to all of the subsidiaries, or we would be doing them a disservice. And so it really made us have to be agile and think about what are the risks and how do we manifest a compliance program that is tangible and really tailored to the needs of not only the parent company, but to each one of our, our, our subsidiary uh, portfolio companies. You know, just listening to that, it sounds to me that is a very early precursor to ESG and how someone can think about that. There's no one size fits all. You have to look at each component. Every company's gonna be different, not simply within a vertical, 
but uh, across your portfolio. Uh, would that even be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that is. And you have to, because here's the thing, you need the buy-in from not only each of the companies, but the individuals in the companies that we have thought about your risks, your values, your you know efforts, and we have come up with a program that is tailored for you. And so it's the same conversation happening in ESG. And I'm on a lot of these conversations, which is like, how does ethics come into ESG? And really that authenticity, that prioritization is so important because that is what is going to not only get the buy-in at every level, but that's what's going to sustain those efforts past what, what could be a moment or a movement. So unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us in our next episode where we take a look at uh, your consulting practice. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode with Scott Sullivan in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.